President Grover Cleveland was a terrible role model. He had won the presidency in 1884 and 1892. He also won the popular vote in 1888, but the Electoral College went to Benjamin Harrison, making him both the 22nd and 24th president of the United States. He proved that it was possible to serve a term in the White House, take some time off, and then win again. The Democrats even tried to run him again in 1904, as if serving two terms in a row was for rank amateurs like James Monroe and Ulysses S. Grant. When confronted by the notion that he couldn't leave the White House for four years and then come back, Theodore Roosevelt had Grover to point to as an example. So maybe the whole debacle of the election of 1912 could have all been avoided if Grover had just stayed home after leaving the White House the first time. Not really. What happened in 1912 was all Teddy. Now that he was there, William Howard Taft liked being President of the United States, even though he had never wanted the job. The position had some nice perks and a $75,000 per year salary, the equivalent of about $2 million today. By nature an administrator, he saw no reason to initiate policy. The Constitution, as he read it, provided him unlimited time for golf, free first-class travel, and the right to doze during meetings. Once his time in office was over, that seat on the Supreme Court he had wanted for most of his life would be waiting. John Quincy Adams had gone to Congress after leaving the White House, so Taft, too, had an example to follow. A whiny letter from Taft reached Teddy when he got home from his big world tour in 1910. I do not know that I have had harder luck than most presidents, Taft wrote, but I do know that thus far I have succeeded far less than have others. I have been conscientiously trying to carry out your policies, but my method of doing so has not worked out smoothly. This went on for pages and pages, a litany of self-pity and excuses. Taft talked more like a vice president left in charge while the boss was away, reporting that, though nothing was on fire, things were smoldering, and he didn't know how to work a fire hose. He even complained about being unable to lose weight. Taft ended by pointing out that the naval reception upon Teddy's arrival in New York had been his idea. William Howard Taft, still just wanting to be liked. The president left an open invitation for Teddy to come visit the White House. After having forced himself to spend a year out of the country, Teddy replied, I don't think it well for an ex-president to go to the White House, or indeed go to Washington, except when he cannot help it. But Teddy couldn't wiggle out of a reunion with his successor when he found himself vacationing on the north shore of Massachusetts, near the Taft Summer White House in Beverly, conveniently within driving distance of the Myopia Golf Links. Teddy drove on over, sat on the porch, asking for a scotch and soda before he even sat down and insisted to Taft that you must be Mr. President and I must be Theodore when the president told him to drop the honorific. It must be that way, Teddy told him. The arrival on the porch of Mrs. Taft, who was no fan of Theodore Roosevelt, put a damper on things. She was recovering from a stroke and half mute, but made no pretense that the former president was anything but a threat to her husband. The two men parted ways in front of 200 newsmen and photographers. Teddy asked Taft, if he could tell them that the visit had been personal and delightful. Taft agreed and said, and more than true as far as I am concerned, this has taken me back to some of those dear old afternoons when I was Will and you were Mr. President. Be careful what you wish for, Will. I mean, Mr. President. The two had their first open altercation over the New York State Republican Convention in 1910. The Taft men in New York sought Teddy's cooperation, but only for the illusion of party unity. Much like in 1908, Taft needed Roosevelt's support or the appearance of it if he had any chance at re-election. But Taft was a smart fellow. 
I do not see how I am going to get out of having a fight with President Roosevelt, Taft mused to Archie Butt, his White House aide who had once been Teddy's. For his part, Teddy's mercurial, contradictory nature was in full swing. He denounced Taft to newspapermen, but wouldn't let them quote him on the record. He wanted to destroy Taft because Taft had failed. He wanted Taft to succeed because Taft was an extension of himself. He knew he was no longer president, but was seen as presidential. Although he was not running, he was running. Even as he maintained his vow of silence, he was shouting from the hustings. As always, whenever Teddy was internally conflicted, he did himself and the country a lot of damage. The conflict between the two leaders of the party meant Republican disunity. It was best personified in Congressman Nicholas Longworth, Teddy's son-in-law and a staunch Taft man from the president's own district in Ohio. The discord in his own house was a microcosm of what was happening in the Republican Party. Longworth was for Taft. His wife was for Roosevelt. Teddy remained destructively coy about his plans. I should certainly not be nominated unless everyone believed that the ship was sinking and thought it a good thing to have me aboard her when she went down. There were few politicians as shrewd and prescient as Theodore Roosevelt, and he knew his involvement in national politics from here on out most likely spelled doom for the Republicans. But he just couldn't help himself. The push to nominate Teddy for chairman of the 1910 New York Republican Convention failed. Vice President Sherman was selected instead. Back at the White House, Taft chortled to Archie Butt. Have you seen the newspapers this afternoon? They have defeated Theodore. Butt had to leave the room. It makes me ill, the man who served both presidents wrote his sister, to see the president lessen his own character by lending himself in his great office to these petty devices to humiliate his predecessor. Teddy, for his part, said, So they want to fight, do they? By George, they shall have it. Oh boy. It is incredible that there should remain a single American citizen who does not see that Theodore Roosevelt has undertaken a campaign for the presidential nomination in 1912, wrote the New York Sun. It was impossible to watch Teddy out in public giving speeches and think otherwise. It was also impossible not to compare his bland, slow-moving successor to him unfavorably. But Taft had the advantage of being president and holding all the levers of political power in his hands. Wall Street, who owned most of the men who decided the nomination, preferred safe and pliable Taft to a maverick on a horse. They believed that weak government meant strong business, and Taft guaranteed weak government. It became the mantra of Republican Party insiders that the best way to defeat Roosevelt in 1912 was to beat him in the midterm elections of 1910. Which they did. The elections of 1910 were a disaster for the Republican Party as a whole, but between the two leaders of the party, Roosevelt fared far worse than Taft. Every candidate he had campaigned for had been defeated, while all those he opposed had won. The president retained the power and patronage he needed to rebuild his base going into the next presidential election, while, less than five months after being welcomed home by a million New Yorkers, the colonel was seen as human, vain, and fallible. Teddy had always had a blind spot about nominating conventions. In 1900, he thought he could get out of being vice president, even though the party bosses wanted him. In 1912, he thought he could get the nomination because the people were with him, even though he had promised not to run. But the party bosses wanted Taft, and as the sitting president, he had the reflexive loyalty of most mainstream Republicans. The progressive wing of the party leaned towards Senator Robert La Follette of Wisconsin as an alternative to Taft, since Teddy had supposedly disqualified himself, but La Follette was no dynamic leader. 
A delegation went to Sagamore Hill in 1911 to draft the former president, saying the party was in distress and needed him. Teddy told them, By George, that would be a good argument if I were the only man available, but I am not. I agree that Taft cannot be elected, but if the party can win, I am not the only Republican with whom it can win. By the end of the year, his best interest would have been to announce that under no circumstances would he run or accept a draft for the presidency. But that prospect was beyond his present policy of non-committal. Teddy had felt incomplete since leaving the White House and forsaking another term. The conflict within him could only be resolved one way. At the end of 1911, he sent his daughter Alice to the White House with a message for his old friend Archie Butt. She was to tell Archie from me to get out of his present job and not to wait for the convention, but do it soon. His hat, as they say, was in the ring. One of Teddy's favorite aphorisms was that nothing is as independent as a hog on ice. If he doesn't want to stand up, he can lie down. He was not, as we have learned, the kind of man who could lie down and wait for the cold to overtake him, immobile. His wife Edith made one final attempt. You can put it out of your mind, Theodore, she told him. You will never be President of the United States again. Nice try, Edith. If William Howard Taft had been more dynamic, it would have been no choice at all. Henry Adams, that descendant of sharp-tongued grumps, out on a walk in Washington, encountered what he at first mistook to be an elephant, but was actually President Taft, looking slovenly and feeble. Adams, coming from a long line of one-term presidents, surmised that Taft wouldn't make it through his second term if he could even manage to get elected. Conventional wisdom held that Taft could easily get the nomination owing to his stature as president and his control of federal patronage, but that he would be handily defeated in the fall by Woodrow Wilson, who looked to be the Democratic nominee. With the loss of the White House seeming certain, a committee of Republican governors released a statement on February 9, 1912. A principle is of no avail without a man. A cause is lost without a leader. In Theodore Roosevelt, we believe the principle has the man and the cause the leader. It is our opinion that this is the sentiment of the majority of the people of the United States. Teddy's wise old friend Elihu Root tried to talk him out of it, warning him that the campaign could very likely see him lose the nomination, or, if he managed to get the nomination, lose the general election in the fall. The United States had been under Republican rule for 16 years and change was in the air. Taft's flaccid administration all but guaranteed it, and the work Taft supporters had done to make Teddy look like a has-been was a gift to the Democrats and their nominee. Taft was already undercutting a Roosevelt candidacy before it was even announced firing any federal officeholder suspected of supporting him. But winning long shots against conventional wisdom was Teddy's specialty, and once he had committed himself, he wouldn't turn back. My hat is in the ring, he said. The fight is on, and I am stripped to the buff. Though he owned William Howard Taft, instead of seeing his inevitable loss as an opportunity to step aside in return for his coveted Supreme Court seat, pick this moment to show some backbone. I fear things are going to become very bitter before long, the president said, but I am going to defeat him in the convention. Well then, 1912 was shaping up to be one rip-roaring year. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider giving us a good rating on Apple Podcasts and whatever platform you listen on, as well as supporting the show on our Patreon page. There's lots of fun bonus content over there, like how to talk to your pets about history, early access to new episodes, and some incidents where fans of the show take me to task about train wrecks that I haven't talked about, and some that I have. It's also a great way to keep the show going.
$3 a month or so goes a long way toward keeping the train wrecks on the tracks, and your support means a lot. Go to patreon.com forward slash histories train wrecks, and thank you so much. If you have your own ideas about third-party presidential campaigns, or think that Grover Cleveland's inconsistency was actually an asset, you can Twitter to add History's Train. You can Instagram, whatever that is, to History's Trainwrecks. If there's a historical train wreck you'd love to see on the tracks, join the History's Trainwrecks Facebook group. And as always, tell every history nerd you know about us. We definitely need to stick together. On our next episode, we'll stop the presses on the election of 1912 and return to ancient Rome to meet the great-grandson of Cato the Elder, the creatively named Cato the Younger, and see if he was as much of an ornery crank as his namesake. Here's a clue. When he was four years old, a Roman general who wanted him to change his mind about a political issue hung him outside a window by his feet and threatened to drop him if he didn't change his mind. Cato the Younger, upside down, arms folded, refused. I sure hope his next encounter with a Roman general goes better. There was only one problem. That general was the bloody dictator Cornelius Sulla. Fingers crossed. Stay tuned for Stubborn Nags of Ancient Rome, Part 2. There was a time when we used to travel the open road and pull into a highway diner and meet fascinating people hear incredible stories, and learn about new ideas. Now I was taught at a young age that you should always sit at the counter. Not only did you meet the most interesting people, but you also got the best service and hottest coffee. Now the open highway brings that concept, not the coffee, the other stuff, to a weekly podcast. Interviews, current events, news, odd stories, and more. I'm your host, Eric Erickson. I'm an author, writer, and journalist, and I've had incredible adventures, and I bring all of those experiences to the show. I know a little bit about everything, and it's just enough to get me into trouble. So join me for The Open Highway, available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Podcasts.